You're listening to the Neighbors and Nations podcast. Welcome to another episode of Neighbors and Nations. I'm Todd Stiles, and I'm really glad you joined in today. My guest is Mindy Jamison, and I uh, became friends with Mindy and her husband John over the years while pastoring here in the Des Moines area, as they were the directors of a ministry in the inner city of Des Moines. And one of the things I really appreciate about Mindy and John, uh, especially Mindy, is just her way of communicating in a laser-like way about issues that are of grave importance to people in the inner city and to those who want to minister to people in the inner city. In fact, one of the things I remember distinctly is just hearing her teach me and some folks I was with about language and uh, usage of words when it comes to ministry in the inner city. And it began to just start me thinking about this is a better way to go about this. And uh, I became very intrigued and talked with her more about it. And so in this episode, we're going to review some of those, have her bring those to our attention. I think you'll find this to be a fascinating, maybe shall we call it a conference or seminar perhaps, about ministry to inner city cultures, ministry to inner city families, even ministry to inner city generations. And our guest today is Mindy Jamison, who now lives in South Carolina and serves there I think you'll thoroughly enjoy this, and I think you'll be thoroughly encouraged, and you'll learn much. So, let's jump right into it. Here's my interview with Mindy Jamison. Welcome back to our podcast this week. Uh, I'm really glad to have our guest with us all the way from South Carolina, Mindy Jamison. Welcome, Mindy, to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Where we live now in, in Iowa is not unfamiliar territory for you. You spent a lot of years here with your husband, John. And so why don't you give us some history about your time in Des Moines area? Uh, talk for a minute about your work here and, and how God used you in those years here. And um, then maybe why he took you to South Carolina. I'd love to hear some of that story as we get to know Mindy. Okay. Um, we love Des Moines. We love, we love Iowa. Uh, we were there for 18 and a half years serving um, the vulnerable in Des Moines with the North American Mission Board, which is um, the mission sending agency of SBC Life. And we worked for the Baptist Convention of Iowa um, for 18 and a half years. And uh, we served the ML King neighborhood, which is um, filled with wonderful, glorious people that we miss so much. Um, but we ran a community center there, got to know the, the, that community so well and um, loved every minute of it, even through all the struggles. It was a real blessing to be there. Uh, moved to South Carolina three years ago to uh, for my husband to work for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. He is the serve team leader. So he helps churches in the state relate to their communities, uh, their vulnerable communities through hunger ministries, ESL, um, a lot of things we did at the center, uh, foster care adoption, just serving the vulnerable. He's kind of the team leader for that. And I am a consultant with the convention, helping churches understand poverty culture and stepping into communities that are not their own, what that might look like. And I work for a prison ministry called Jumpstart, which is uh, a 40 week intensive program where we take inmates through the purpose driven life. 
and our own workbook that was been, has been created by um, people that work for Jumpstart that have been incarcerated prior to, um, to working for Jumpstart. So it's just phenomenal. I'm in four prisons um, in the state and helping people go in and support inmates. And the inmate is inmate led. Um, and so the inmates do all the work. We just support them and encourage them. So it's been, it's been a real blessing in my life to, to be um, on the inside, seeing what God's doing through uh, those that are incarcerated. And that uh, ministry to prisons there was not something that you did here. And was that something you expected when you moved there? Or was that kind of a new development? It actually was something that we did in Des Moines. There, there is a transitional oh. prison about three blocks from the Friendship Center. It's a woman's facility. And we went down there every summer with our mission teams. We took our teams down there. And I kidded around all the time with the lady that ran the place. Her and I became good friends. And I said, I said, when I grow up, I, I want to work in the prisons. And she, she always laughed, you know. But it, it was a woman's facility. They were just about to be released and so um, it, they let us come in, do Bible studies, play games, things like that. So I really enjoyed that work, but just got to do it in the summer. So it, it was funny that when we came here, they needed someone to um, take volunteers in and kind of help coordinate the work here in the Midlands where we live in Columbia. So um, it's, I, I thought I wanted to do chaplain. You know, I have some chaplaincy backgrounds. So I thought I wanted to do prison chaplaincy, um, but that you know, seeing what they do is probably more my skill set fits with being involved in the classes and hearing what's going on with the inmates and um, in a different role than maybe an institutional chaplain. But yeah, it was interesting how it all worked out. That's interesting. I, I feel like I wasn't a very good board member because I was a board member of the Friendship Center and didn't know we had a prison three blocks away. Yes, right there. It's really, <laughs> And that we were involved. Yeah, it's really hidden. It's um, behind the hospital, behind Broadlands. There is huh. a, a state facility there. Um, so, yeah, we, we loved going down. We, like I said, we only went down in the summer when we had teams. But. Well, um, before I ask you about your calling and, and some things uh, that I know you feel very passionate about, I didn't know if you knew this. I actually lived in South Carolina for about six years as a kid. No, I didn't. Where did you live? See, we lived in Florence for about two years and then in a little town called Kingstree. Have you ever heard of King Street, South Carolina? No, I have not. It's smaller than a speck. So <laughs> there are a lot of small towns here. Well, just like in Iowa, yeah. but well, it's a beautiful state. I mean, it's it's a gorgeous state. There is tremendous amounts of poverty um, in the state, just tremendous amounts. So it, it it's very beautiful and um, and it also has a, a tremendous amount of needs. But well, that's funny. You don't even you didn't carry that southern accent with you to Iowa. Well, I did, but I've lost a good bit of it. Uh, but anyway, so one thing I really appreciate about you and John is, and it seems to have been a, a constant theme in your ministries, is that you just have a heart for, and you use the word vulnerable. And I, I suspect that's a kind of an umbrella word for lots of things. But back that train up a little bit. Did you and John sense, and maybe just ask you, did, did you sense like a, a calling to that specific type of ministry early on? Did you sense God moving your heart? those areas of ministry uh, to the vulnerable, because it seems like that's just been something you've always done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think my call is definitely different than, than John's, but um, I was, I was not raised in a home that was Christian per se. We, you know, we didn't go to church, those types of things. I went to church with my grandma and really heard the gospel the first time through vacation Bible school. And as a 13 year old, that's how I, I came to know the Lord. Um, and so 
being in church wasn't really a familiar thing to me. But after praying to receive Christ, going to church, my church did um, some after-school ministries in a low-income community in Fort Myers, Florida. I'm from South Florida, um, and I lived in Iowa for 18 and a half years, so that's hilarious. Um, (laughs) I went to these after-school programs, and I mean, it was just like I had always been there, you know, and I just fit in with a community that I didn't have much in common with. Um, you know, my, my mother has passed since we moved here, but she had a mental health issue. So I, I kind of could get people that were struggling with, with mental health issues or living with those that struggle with that. Um, but I, you know, we weren't raised in a, uh, government housing or anything like that. So just these experiences over my life and then being at college exposed to uh, going on mission trips through my collegiate ministry to areas that were vulnerable, inner city work, homeless work. It just, the Lord was really clear to me that I would serve him um, outside the walls of the church and with those that may not just wake up on Sunday morning and enter the church, get up and say, hey, I decided to come. You know, they might need someone to come and walk alongside them to see who God is and and what that might look like. Um, And so that was really the beginning of my call. And then, of course, I went to Carson Newman College, which is in East Tennessee. That's where I met John. And... um, you know, he jokes around that his call, you know, he didn't have the pastor hair, so he knew he couldn't be called a pastor. <laughs> but, um, and he was raised in a church that had a pastor and a youth pastor and a music pastor. And that was really the extent of his ministry. You know, he didn't know what else you could do in ministry. And so being exposed to mission trips in college and going to where um, people are and seeing hurt and pain and seeing that, you know, Christ could use him. It was a huge part of his calling as well. Um, but then I went to seminary in New Orleans, which if you've been to New Orleans, there's a lot of, um, of vulnerable people, people on the margins. And um, that really solidified what God would have me to do and be. And I worked with homeless and a drug and alcohol rehabilitation program there for three years while I was in school and just really made clear to me that that's what I was created to do was be present with those who are hurting. And, um, and you know, you, people can say all kinds of things about who you are or where you're from, or you don't look like us. You don't act like this. You're not from where we are, but all throughout my whole ministry, that was a barrier for about 30 seconds, you know, and past that, it just wasn't a big deal. You know, like, what are you doing here? You're a little white girl that might've last five minutes, you know? And then it was like, Oh, well, what do we have in common? And what, you know, what, what could we, how can we walk through this struggle together? You know, we make a lot of excuses sometimes because we think, well, we won't have anything in common, but it's amazing how much you have in common with, with everyone. when you just take the time. It seems like you uh, intentionally found common ground. Always. Yeah. I think, I think being curious is the work of the Holy spirit. You know, um, that's a great line there. That's good. Just, just being willing to chat, chat it up. And I'm, I feel like I'm one of my gifts. I don't have a lot of um, talents. <laughs> no one wants to hear me sing, you know, no one wants to hear me do anything musically, but I do have a very strange skill of talking to anyone at any time and being friendly in that way. And um, the Lord has just used that all throughout my life to strike up conversations and to make common ground and, Um, and people that are vulnerable are so, there's a lot of characters, there's a lot of fun, there's a lot of personality, even through the hurt, 
And uh, if you're curious, you'll learn a whole lot and you'll make good friends and, and you'll have so much fun doing it, surprisingly. So, you know, it's interesting as I hear you talk, my mind keeps going back to those first years we met and just being around you and being around you and John. I remember one of the greatest learning curves that I think I experienced was hearing your language. And I'm having some of those thoughts now, like you just do a really good job at expressing concepts about ministry to people I usually just sit on the margins and so I just want to kind of uh, go down that trail a little bit help us our listeners who probably more than likely uh, just don't have a ton of experience in that kind of ministry whether it's called inner city or, or whatever but um, I've just noticed you've used a lot of words that I think are better than perhaps what we've used before uh, one of those may even be inner city. I think that's the word we use a lot, but I noticed that as the center even transitioned in some of its emphasis, it was more about generational poverty or more about, um, those are words I learned from you, by the way. <laughs> uh, I just like to hear more about language and how you have developed that. It's a little more descriptive about what's really going on below the surface. Sure. I think language is really important. You know, how you um, tell the story you know, the narrative about your work and what God's doing shapes the listener's perspective um, on that person. And so you can go into a church or talk to people and talk about the poor, pitiful people, you know, down in some neighborhood, um, how they're just so needy and unfortunate. Um, and people will respond to that for a brief time but those that you're serving will have been exploited through the process. And so hmm. when, and I think when we first came, you know, our first couple of years, we were straight out of seminary. We were 25 years old. We made so many mistakes with our language. We felt like, honestly, at least I did, that I was coming to that community um, and they were going to be looking for me and say, oh, oh my gosh, where have you been? You know, you, we've been waiting for your help. And what I found was that was not the case. They didn't really care what I knew or who I was, <laughs> but they had so much to teach me, you know, and I think well, books like When Helping Hurts, you know, Toxic Charity, um, Having Nothing, Possessing Everything, those types of books, I think helped the church, help the church to see those that are vulnerable or marginalized through the eyes of God. And God sees us made in his image with dignity and respect. So our language needs to reflect that. And, you know, there's so many nonprofit organizations and so many ministries that say we're helping the needy or, you know, there's all these needs. And it just, if we were talking about someone at the center and I used that language and they were in front of me, it would offend them because they are a person mm. made with strengths and made with skills and talents and made in God's image. So we quickly had to rethink our language. And of course we still make mistakes and we still say things, you know, people say homeless people. Well, it, they're not homeless people. They're people experiencing homelessness. And so just making that shift, I think it helps your perspective and it helps the listener's perspective. Um, you know, we're all marginalized. We're all broken. You know, these organizations that say, oh, we're just serving the broken. You know, I wouldn't want to say that to someone in the ML King neighborhood because they're more put together in areas where I'm lacking. And maybe I'm, la maybe I'm put together more in some areas that they're lacking. But if we can't do this thing with each other, then it becomes very unhealthy. 
and I become kind of the savior helping you out and you become this poor, pitiful person that, um, can't do anything for themselves. And I just, you know, the longer we were in it, the more we came to understand that we were wrong and the language we were using was wrong. Um, and if we could see people the way God saw them, then they have strengths, abilities, skills that we need to use and our language matters. Is that part of what you do as a consultant there in South Carolina with the churches is to help them maybe learn better ways to communicate? Yes. Uh, we start off with our bias because we all have our bias, right? I mean, it's scripture talks about showing favoritism, you know, and, and, and that's bias, right? That's just, that's just fancy word for bias. And so we all have this bias. So we start off talking about bias, then we move to understanding culture, um, some Ruby Payne information, if you're interested, um, what every church member should know about poverty, Ruby Payne. So I'm trained in some of her material. We combine that with our experience and with when helping hers. And we help churches or nonprofits, um, understand culture, best practices, how to go into a community that doesn't look like you. You know, we really, I hope we help people think about a different perspective and a different way to enter in um, because how you enter in is so important to a community. Um, they automatically size you up. Hmm. Do you recall, um, I'm not sure how many years ago it was, but one of our church plants brought you in to help them understand how to reach their community. Um, I think it was Life Change Church, Steve Christensen and those and his team. So they had you come over. They were planted out of our church. And so they met at our church in their training. You came over. And I'll never forget the next morning at staff, Steve said, man, he said, Mindy blew us away. He said, we're not ready to plant this church. Because <laughs> I think just being brought into that culture, and then you making them aware of really what was ahead for them. Mm -hmm. It was a mind blowing uh, training event. So I don't know how it's going there in South Carolina, but you sure did a great job with our church plant um, wow. in those years. I don't know if you recall that. Or yes, not. I totally do. I totally do. On the East side, right? You're yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that experience. Um, and I think, you know, if somebody 20 years ago would have sat John and I down and said, Hey, don't do this because, you know, we made a lot of mistakes. We did a lot of things to that community. We did a lot of things for that community. And it wasn't until we made the shift to do things with them that we saw real transformation. And, um, and it, it, it lightened our burden and it also, um, it increased the burden on that community to, to rise up to what we knew God wanted to do through them. And so, um, yeah, you know, it's interesting because it's like this light bulb kind of goes off about culture. And that's what happened to me when I first heard the Ruby Payne information and all the toxic charity stuff. I just remember sitting and hearing it and thinking, we've done everything wrong, you know, and, and crying and saying, we have to scrap everything and start over. And at least in our minds, retool and rethink um, and, and do better. Well, let's take one of those words, one of those concepts, and maybe walk our listeners through um, what generational poverty actually is and how it's, um, and I'm speaking here from ignorance. I need you to probably just take the baton, but like, what, why is that phrase or word better than maybe what we've used before and what did we use before? And what's the sense and, and the meaning of generational poverty? Yeah. You know, everyone, it's important to figure out for yourself, I think, how you define poverty. Um, you know, Chalmers, when helping hurts, they talk about the way you define poverty is the way you'll kind of go about thinking it needs to be fixed. So 
you know, if you see poverty as a, a lack of material goods, then you might say, hey, let's go down to that trailer court or let's go into that community and let's take some stuff, you know, because they don't have enough stuff or they need their rent paid or, you know, they need their electric bill paid. Um, but the longer that we were in the ministry there in, in La King community, um, we saw that it wasn't about stuff as much as it was about community. And so when people are living in poverty and generational poverty, that's two or more generations that live in poverty, a set of beliefs, a mindset is developed. And situational poverty is when, you know, you're just going about life and you lose your job. There's a death, there's a divorce, and you kind of go into that bracket of financial, um, maybe what the government would deem poverty, right? But you still think like a middle-class person and you're still able to kind of handle life in a middle-class world. Well, when you live in poverty and there's two or three generations, there's a mindset that develops that has a different culture than middle-class. Um, and so helping individuals, people understand that you're stepping into a different way of thinking and you need to understand what that thinking is or else you're going to offend. You know, you're going to come across as our way is better. We're coming down here to show you how to budget or we're going to show you how to parent or we're going to show you how to do church even. And so when we do that, we are offending and we are making more barriers between us and, and someone else. Um, and so that's really the definition of poverty. But how you define it is really how you go about fixing it or what you think fixing mm. is or I, I don't like the word fixing. I don't like the word helping. I don't like the word mentoring, but um, how we support each other. And I think when we start to see the lack of community that, you know, people are left out of, you know, they have community within each other, which is really beautiful. And they rely on each other in a really beautiful way. Middle-class people do not do that. But the connecting to the outside community and being integrated, we, you know, we really saw that lack of um community there. And so when we can help someone that's on the margins be pulled in to the majority and offer community, whether through church, whether through friendship, help reconcile them to God, others themselves, and to community, we've really done something powerful. And we've done something that no agency's doing, you know, that, that your social service agencies aren't doing that type of work. Um, and that's really the need is community. The need really isn't I need my light bill paid or I need, um, you know, uh, my, uh, groceries that might be what's presented, but what's underneath is I need to be a part of the larger group and I need to be able to live and work and move in the world of middle-class and poverty and understand those concepts. When you're in situations like that, then, and you don't want to necessarily bring in like a fix it mentality or say, well, here, do it this way or our way. How do you go about though? can I use the word repairing broken patterns or how do, how do you go about setting new patterns then when maybe something like that needs to occur? How, how does that happen then? I think first um, we do make the assumption that that needs to happen as middle-class people. We look into a community that's low income or vulnerable and we decide what is broken and we decide what mm. needs to be fixed. And I would just really caution you on that because Every person, if we believe they're made in the image of God, then they can problem solve on their own. And we want people to be able to solve their own problems. And so if, if you're in a community and you've made friends and you've been a listener and you're, you're 
you know, in lives of people that are living in poverty and they are looking for support um, and help through transitions, then you can come alongside and walk alongside them. But I think that process is dictated by them. You know, if you come into a community, and okay. say, we're going to do, you know, a budgeting class or something. And that community didn't ask for that. You know, you're missing the mark and you're really coming in saying we know better than you. And people in poverty, quite honestly, I think communities that are living in poverty are are tired of that. They're tired of someone coming in, driving in, driving out, you know, um, telling them how sure. to live. And we really want to um, take somebody where they're at as they take us where we are you know, kind of that mutual respect and do life together. Now, if they say, hey, man, I really want to work on my budget, then yeah, let's do it. Let's get into it. Knowing that you're going to see my budget too. And we're going to look at this together as friends would support each other. Not as I am this, you know, all wisdom and you're going to receive my wisdom. Um, And so I, I think it's just the way you enter in. It's like a heart thing. It's a mind thing. And if you come in saying, hey, we're ready to repair all the brokenness that we see, that's just your, your culture and your opinion. And uh, we want to be careful about doing things for people when they can do it for themselves. Yeah. I admit to you, I, I, and our church, we've done that. We did that with the friendship center one summer. We brought down a bunch of fans. Um, the need was for fans. I think that was what you guys expressed. So we purchased a bunch of box fans and brought them down and delivered them and distributed them. And, I don't think our intentions were to try to fix or give more stuff, but I, I, I can see we were in some of those same mentalities. I don't think it's necess- I don't know if it's sinful or wrong, but it is limiting. And I can see how it can be a little demeaning perhaps at times but, unintentionally. Yeah. And I think too, when you have something like the friendship center where we're there all the time making friends and you come along and you offer support through that and you're helping us make friends with people that need a fan or need, you know, there's, there's pieces of that that are okay, but here's, here's, here's the qualifier. If, if you aren't building relationships with people in poverty, then what you're doing is not okay. It's probably doing harm. Right. And so you are coming alongside of us as we built friendships, you know, so I don't know that that would be considered sinful. If there was no friendship center there and you dropped in a neighborhood and you dropped off a bunch of fans and you said, we've helped the poor, you know, and you leave, I would say that would be really uh, one-sided and not effective. But you kind of came alongside of us. Now, if every week we are giving out fans, we're paying people's rent, we're doing things for people that they could do for themselves. I would say there's an unhealthiness there, but sometimes there's a need Mm -hmm. for some basic things to happen and fans are a part of that. Now, of course, we were taking things deeper. We were taking things further uh, because we were there. But if you just pulled into a community, dropped off a bunch of fans and thought that you actually did something, then I would say you would not be correct. (laughs) (laughs) There's some really interesting similarities to what you just described and how um, we also work with partners in a, even a closed access country, because one of the things I think that has been helpful for our church is to realize that our main responsibility is to help the partners who are already there. Yes. Support them, love them. And don't try to come in and be the great, you know, uh, white hope yes. in one week. And what you're saying is really the same thing for those who work in areas that are close to home, but maybe with vulnerable people is don't try to be the fix it guy. Help the folks who are already there. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I, I can say being a missionary on the field, you know, the teams encouraged us. You know, I, I sometimes I think more than the, the work at the center. You know, we, we needed that encouragement a lot on the field. So those things are important. But I, th- I think, I mean, I love mission trips. I, that's how it called me out. That's what shaped my life. But sometimes I, I really believe that as a church, you know, we can do so much when we support the vulnerable around the world, um, you know, by purchasing things that make their life easier, a goat, a chicken, you know, spending our time wisely on those types of things. Or, you know, we, we go down and we paint churches or we do these things. Well, why don't we hire locals to do that kind of work? You know, looking for the strengths in the community. If you're going to go to Guatemala, you know, and you're going to do something in Guatemala, be purchasing things from the local Guatemalans, be purchasing things, be eating in those communities, be buying things from the local people. I just think there's, there's ways to do mission and that are more effective than really what we've done in the past. Um, we want to, we want to leave a community. Well, we don't want to harm them. And if you partner with someone who wants you to come down and, and do things that seem damaging to those in the community that I would seriously consider that partnership. So when you were in Des Moines, um, I know this podcast is about neighbors and nations, and this has been a a kind of a a neighbor conversation in some ways because we're talking about things close to us. But yet, ethnically, uh, you probably met a lot of different nations, even in the MLK neighborhood, didn't you? Oh, my goodness. The world has come to the MLK neighborhood. Um, We we miss that so much, that diversity. Uh, My child's school there and her elementary school, there were 17 languages spoken. And so, you know, we just, we had ESL classes, people from all over the world. I mean, we definitely served the nations um, and we definitely, you know, did neighboring as well, but the world has come to, to really the Midwest. And that's such a blessing to be a part of that. Um, and we, we miss that it's not so ethnically diverse here. Um, and, and that is definitely felt by us. Um, we learned so much and had such a fun time with other people and learning about their culture. And, um, but yeah, the, the nations have come, you know, you know that you go to the Walmart in Windsor Heights and it's amazing. It's like, it's so amazing to be there and the opportunities that are there are immense. So you mentioned earlier, best practices, that that's something you help churches there in South Carolina understand better. Could you itemize or maybe sequentialize, if I can use that word, maybe a few of those for our listeners as maybe they are in their churches, maybe some things that help them think about ministry to the vulnerable? Absolutely. I, I think the very first thing, um, if you if your eyes are open in your community, they're vulnerable in your community. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter um, what community you're in. They're vulnerable there. Um you know, through foster care adoption, through, you know, refugees, through people being abused or exploited, there's all kinds of needs. And I think the first thing to do, if you notice that, hopefully the first thing is to notice it, eyes, eyes open. Um, mm-hmm. But the second thing would be to start and begin to understand culture. So if you think people are living in poverty, begin to educate yourself on poverty culture. I think the next thing would be um, if you decide you want to enter into a community that's not your own the first thing to do is be a humble person, you know, going in as a learner, 
you know, not going in with all the answers and, you know, you're going to Dave Ramsey, this community, you know, you're going to just hook them up. (laughs) Those things are not going to work and, and it's offensive. And so being a listener, um, listening, 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 and, and then deciding what might be a way you could partner with that community, a way you could work with that community after you get to know the people living there and you recognize their strengths. Um, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, I guess, and still some people do this, they go into a community and they do a needs assessment, which isn't all bad. But when you're in vulnerable communities for, for generations, people have just seen people through their through the lens of their needs, you know, and not the lens of their strengths. And so if you can begin to get to know a community, get to know people and see the strengths of the community and tap into that, um, you will see transformation in that community. You'll be a part of it. You'll be transformed yourself. But I think those are really some key things is be, just being a humble listener and a learner and going in and just making friends. Um, I think if you go into a community with a bunch of stuff, you know, here we are, we have a cookout, we're going to hand out a bunch of clothes, we're going to hand out a bunch of stuff, we don't really know you, we're going to hand out turkeys, we're going to bring in Christmas presents, we don't know you. That's how that community will see you from then on mm. as the people who bring stuff. And that will get old for you and it will get old for that community. And then there's tension and then you're not thankful enough and you're not grateful enough and we're all tired and all these things start to happen. And if you can go into that community, just get to know people and say, you know, Hey, we're prayer walking or we're listening, we're learning. Um, that's a totally different mentality and you, you value who's there and their strengths. Um, that's a different perspective and mindset than going in passing out, you know, a million school supplies and you don't know a soul there. I think it's interesting that your best practices were really focused on being something yeah. before doing something. That's interesting to me. And it's so hard because people are like, tell us what to do. We want to go do. And I think it's just mm. good Baptist. You know, we just want to, we want to do. And <laughs> um, sometimes we just need to be quiet and still and not be the experts and not be the, the bossy ones and not have all the resources, you know, Vulnerable communities have resources. They have strengths. And we, we really, if people are going to move out of poverty, we have to recognize that. And we have to kind of fan those flames of the gifts that God has given um, those communities. So when we go in and we just know everything, it kind of squelches those gifts and those God-given talents because we bring the resources, we bring the stuff, and they never get a chance to express themselves. As you think back on your time here in Des Moines for those 18-plus years, uh, and maybe even where you are now, I don't know, but just I'd like to maybe ask this question with two sides. What was the hardest, most frustrating thing about those years? And it may still be true in your work there. I don't know if it's a thing that's, you know, uh, timeless or not, but what was the hardest, most frustrating element in that ministry? And then what was your deepest delight? Like this one coin, but maybe two sides. Just share from your heart for a minute. Gosh, the hardest thing. There were a lot of hard things. Um, I, and I don't think we realized how how hard it was till we got here. And we started to kind of debrief. Mm. And, you know, when you are with those that are traumatized or vulnerable, you get traumatized, you know. And 
there were many, many sad stories, many heartbreaks. And I think that was the hardest thing was seeing people struggle, just struggle and seeing them have so much pain and hurt in their life and, and not being able to fix it, you know, just being able to be present and to be, to, we prayed that we were Christ's presence and in the midst of, of a lot of pain. Um, but a, a tremendous amount of, of crying and struggle. And that was tough on our hearts for sure. I think that, and of course, you know, you know, funding issues, that's always so hard and um, difficult. You know, we were two people on staff getting paid one salary, needing about five people on staff. And so that was just a tremendous burden all the time. Uh, we are grateful for the offering that supported us. So grateful, but it, it was a lot of work for two people. Um, and we did have some staff every now and then people just volunteer their time, of course, but that was a heavy burden. I think the delight was really when we released control, uh, when we released resources, when we became vulnerable um, with those that we served, you know, I can say honestly that in my own soul that people in that community healed me. They were a part of my healing. They were a part of my discipleship. Um, they were a part of my growth. And if I thought I was the helper, that would not have happened. You know, when I became the learner, I watched people speak into my life in that community that maybe somebody else would have written off, you know, that didn't speak English very well, but yet you know, got up and said, Hey, I was praying for you all night, you know, oh, it made me cry, but just different, different ways people minister to us in that community was, it was the kingdom of God at hand. You know, it was the kingdom Amen. of God on earth to watch God move through someone that might not have a lot, but could speak into my heart and heal me in a way that's so powerful that, you know, decades later, it still brings tears to my eyes. Just the, the, the joy of seeing people um, come to know the Lord and that transformed their life. And then they grow up and they have children and their children are believers and just watching those generations change. You know, there's so many young people that now are parents that we stay in such close contact with that we love so much that they're raising their children to be believers and to be wonderful, lovely people. And so that's been such a delight, but you know, when we let go of all the power and it was just a mental thing for us, like we're the helpers, but we let that idea go. Um, we were transformed. Hmm. That's interesting. You, you've mentioned a lot of different books. Um, mm -hmm. I think the content level of this interview has been wonderful. And I think probably our listeners are thinking, wow, there's so much more I need to know. Is there a place that our listeners could go to maybe contact you or maybe learn more from you or maybe a book list? I don't know if there is. I'm just kind of curious because I think there are many people who would love to talk more with you. Maybe you could share an email address if you want to, or maybe a sure. Facebook. I, I just kind of throw that to you open handed here and see how people could get in touch with you. Sure. I'm kind of an old lady, Todd. So I don't have like an Instagram <laughs> or I, I have a 14 year old child who's getting ready to enter high school and we just got her a phone. Like we're the mean parents, you know, and so <laughs> um, <laughs> we're such the mean parents, but, um, but I do have a really old email address. It's, um, it's Jameson, J-A-M-I-S-O-N, Mindy, M-I-N-D-Y, at hotmail.com. So, so we can email me there at Jameson, Mindy, at hotmail.com. Or um, 
Facebook, they can reach out to me on Facebook for sure. And it's Mindy Jameson. Uh, but that's really the only way to contact me. So feel free to okay. email me and I'll be glad to help. Um, a great website. If you're, well, if you're interested in Jumpstart Prison Ministry, you might check that out. It's jumpstartvision.org. And so that's a great organization to look at. Ruby Payne has written a lot of books on generational poverty. They're not, you know, like religious per se books, but they are great, great content uh, when helping her. It's the Chalmers Center is phenomenal. Talking about benevolence, talking about good practices. Um, so when you combine that with culture, it's really a, a good thing. A great book I just finished reading about two years ago, um, Having Nothing, Possessing Everything. It is a fabulous book about a man who really did such similar work that John and I did that reading it was like, oh my gosh, he's, he's living our life. But it's a great book about when people have nothing, they really have everything and just finding those strengths and community. Um, that's a great resource. And if a church uh, wanted to have you speak to them on this topic or maybe train them outside of South Carolina, um, is that a possibility? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've done things for school systems, for hospitals, for churches. Um, yeah. They could contact me through um, Jameson Mindy at hotmail.com. That's great. great. And I would commend to our listeners, your ministry, your knowledge, your love for people, and just your commitment to finding the best way forward. Cause I've seen even you and John just adapt and morph and change. I've learned from that and watched it and, and just benefited from seeing, you know, you two just have a humble heart towards trying to do the very best you can in the area that God's put you in. I appreciate that about you. Mm-hmm. Um, one last question. I asked this to all of our listeners. Uh, what's, what would you love to see God do before you die? Uh, so, so much, uh, <laughs> but, you know, a couple things I'd love to see him do just in my own life. I would just love to see him continually, put me in places where I can be his presence to people that are hurting. That's just, that's my focus. That's the focus he's given me. I pray he continues to put me in that place. Uh, Our daughter Maggie, you know, is 14. I would love to see God just glorify himself through her. And he is doing that. You know, she serves the homeless in our community and her heart is bent that way. And, you know, we always say we're not raising a diva, we're raising a disciple. And so I would love to see her just be used by God with the vulnerable all, you know, all throughout the world. And I think I would really love to see God glorify himself for the church. The church would get out of the church, get out Mm of, you know, their heads and step out and be near where those that are hurting are, you know, forget politics, forget what's going on at the church and just be about the mission of God. And I think all those other things will fall into place. But when we leave out the discipleship piece of when we leave out making disciples, you know, Mm. uh, we leave that piece out. We are not living the abundant life. And I would love to see Christians stepping out, making disciples with those in their community, especially those that are vulnerable and, um, And the last thing I think I would love to see God glorify himself through those that maybe society would think he wouldn't, you know, because that's what he does. Just like those that are incarcerated, watching him glorify himself through them. That's the last person someone would think could, you know, someone who's harmed someone, someone who's hurt others, someone who's hurt themselves. 
he glorifies, he reconciles and glorifies himself. And to get to watch that is so worshipful and it's so beautiful. And I think that's really the purpose uh, is that he reconciles us, he changes us, and then he wants us to go make disciples. And somewhere along the line, we get confused or we get caught up or we get sidetracked. And um, I just, I would love to see God just really focus um, the church on those that are hurting and that need him. Mindy, thank you for being our guest today. Thank you for sharing honestly, transparently, and also just very informatively. Uh, Again, I've just learned by talking to you and I hope our listeners have too. I'm sure they have. Thank you so much. It was great. Give my regards to John, would you? And uh, enjoy the great Palmetto State. <laughs> <laughs> we will. We will. It's a blessing. So thank you so much, Todd. It's good to see you. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Neighbors and Nations podcast. To learn more about how to support this podcast and our partners, go to toddstyles.net slash podcast. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcasting app.